HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School. Coming up March 13th through 21st, 2021 is their 28th annual Spring Conference. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I admire, who inspires me with their everyday actions and illuminations. Today, I have a very, very special guest, Felicia Ruiz, and she lives in Rio Verde in Arizona, and she is a traditional healer who uses recipes and folk remedies passed down through generations from her Mexican and Tewa family. Welcome, Felicia. I'm so happy to have you here. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your ancestors because I feel so much of the work that you put out in the world is brought you through generations of your family and generations of healing and the the experiences that you've had learning from not just your family, but from the generations around you. Yes. So my brothers and sister, we are the first ones born outside of New Mexico in hundreds and hundreds of years. We all were born in the Sonoran Desert, uh, which is what I really call home. We have been surrounded by so many amazing people that have taught us about our food ways, but it was a long time ago. And so a big part of me remembering really our traditional food ways was only when we would go back to our grandparents' home in northern New Mexico, my grandmother specifically. And that's where I saw healing happening in the kitchen. Simultaneously, I saw a lot of what we would consider like the sad diet also emerging into our family's home. So I kind of walked between two different worlds because I would see a lot of the traditional things when we were there. But when we would come back home, back to Arizona, I think part of growing up a brown kid here, like we really were assimilating to American culture, even though we were from here. So, you know, where I am now, it's really about remembering our ancestral foodways and honoring those foodways, things that are really in the back of my memory from when I was small. Can you just take us back to when you were little? I know that you were in your grandmother's kitchen and you watched her as a healer. And do you have poignant or strong memories from those times that you draw upon? I do. So my grandmother and my great-grandmother actually lived together in the same adobe home in Old Town Albuquerque in New Mexico. And so those are probably my strongest memories of being very small 
and watching them string chilies or make homemade tortillas and fresh pots of beans. And I don't remember them preparing a lot of meat. It was um, mostly like a vegetarian diet by default. Meat was very hard to come by, I think. And so for me growing up, like we really ate a lot of vegetables and, and fresh herbs and things that they were growing or trading and picking up at the different um, little markets. And my very first memory that I associate with my great grandmother, uh, she was a traditional healer, a curandera. She was the one who taught me wild crafting. And that was my, I believe, introduction into really understanding that the plants of the land were healing and, and making their way back into our kitchens. And is that the definition of wild crafting? The definition of wild crafting, to me, it, it's just honoring the land and picking the different edible and medicinal plants from your area in a respectful way. That is my definition, and, and it's very reciprocal. It was something that we never just went out and took everything, and there's a lot of teachings behind the way that we were taught to pick. What are the ideas behind that? Well, it's about leaving some for the animals, leaving some for the birds, leaving some for the next person who also is hoping to find that same plant for their own kitchen apothecary and, and leaving some just in gratitude to the plant also. So yeah, lots of beautiful teachings are behind the way we forage that I wish that more people would honor those ways. Oh my goodness. I mean, hearing you describe that, I feel like if we could just take that idea and multiply it across every single resource of every kind, it would change the world in a day. You know, respect that everything isn't here just to serve our own individual purpose. So I know that you were cooking from a very young age. Can you just tell me about your love of cooking? Well, I learned kind of backwards, I guess. Like my mother was not a fantastic cook. She definitely made food for our family, but my mom, uh, she went back to school when she was 40. And for me, I believe I was about sixth grade and I had the responsibility of now cooking for my siblings. And so I really didn't know much about cooking other than just like simple techniques. So I really did Saturday morning while some kids loved watching cartoons, I would start watching different cooking shows and just learning basics. And it was just trial and error. And when I did have the opportunity, because we went back to New Mexico often, I really was that little kid who was in the kitchen following different aunties around and just watching what they were doing. And they would teach me different types of cooking techniques and they were happy to share with me. And then I would bring those techniques back home and and practice what I learned. That seems like a lot of responsibility to be cooking for your family and in sixth grade. I, I can attest that the twins definitely were good sports because there was a lot of meals that they were very confused by. I was definitely very curious from a young age about foods from all over the world. So I do have really funny memories about me trying to learn how to make, let's say, chicken teriyaki from what I could find at a grocery store in, you know, 1980. I, I know that you opened a restaurant at, at some point. What motivated you to open the restaurant? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Right. So um, long ago, when I was with my daughter's father, we had already had a coffee business and I just was always in the kitchen at our own home. And I can't begin to tell you how many times people would say, you should open a restaurant, you should open a restaurant. I, I think that idea was in my mind of there wasn't a restaurant out there that served the type of food that I was envisioning. And so we had got the money together and we put the restaurant together and it really was a labor of love in that the whole place was 
put together with found objects, recycled things. People often said it just didn't feel like they were even in Phoenix, Arizona. It was very different, a very strong, what I would call a Mediterranean menu. Lots of vegetables, I think, were the key for me as a a big vegetable eater. And it just, it, it was a space for me where I really started coming into my kitchen healer mind frame, my mindset set of really understanding energy as it went into the food because people would say often customers the day that I came in if you weren't there that same dish just tasted different. Do you think that there's a way to sort of prepare your energy to be in the kitchen and to put the love in the food to make it as delicious and sort of nutritious both emotionally and physically as possible? Uh, Well, for me, intention is everything. Having the privilege of studying under so many indigenous grandmothers here in the Southwest, all of them have said to me that your energy was the most important ingredient in some form or another. And so it's a matter of simply being grateful for the water that's in the pot, you know, stirring your pot a certain way that's in alignment with your own traditions. And it's a a form of gratitude uh, that I felt when I had my own restaurant. What I was doing was so unusual for someone, a native person, an indigenous person, a Chicana to be cooking food. And and it wasn't a Mexican restaurant. It was a place that served different types of healing foods. It was so important to me that I also put my intention into those dishes because it was unusual. I wanted people to understand that this was a, a space of healing, not just a restaurant space. How long did you have the restaurant? It was about five years and I closed during the Great Recession. That must have been so hard because obviously you put so much into making it a very, very special place. Did the closing then, you know, create another opportunity? And how would you imagine those two things are linked? Oh, there so much clarity came probably two years after the closing. I went through a stage of grief when I had to close. Just like a relationship, you know, you question why, what did I do wrong? Things like that. And and I recognized it was a result of the Great Recession, and which is why I have so much sympathy right now for all of the small restaurants that are trying to stay afloat. It definitely opened my eyes to a completely different career path that I did not foresee myself on. I started questioning everything. Why don't I see brown people that look like me, women, Why don't I see indigenous people on the Food Network, you know, with a cooking show in magazines? When I look into magazines and I see ingredients that are from where I'm from or where my family's from, from where I'm standing, how come they talk about us like we're extinct? And it just really started me on this journey of wanting to know more about my own food ways, about my own culture and more deeply. And it was like I opened that door of curiosity and so many other indigenous people, uh, chefs, apparently around 2008, 9, 10, like this all started happening for many of us. And by 2012, I decided that that was going to be my focal point as it went in food, going back to my own food ways. When you went back, what did you do to learn? And then what can other people do to learn? Because we have so much to learn. Right. So for me, and of course, this is my experience. Everyone's experience will be different, but it was like opening a genealogy book, you know, a family tree book. I started looking at when did our family's diet change, you know, and as an indigenous person of this area, I kind of feel like our food ways changed unwillingly. And so for me, it was like a remembering of our ways. And that's a big lesson that I try to teach everyone that I work with is, you know, peel back maybe one or two layers of of your genealogy and, and go back and see perhaps what your grandmothers or your great grandmothers um, and, and farther back were eating. What did that diet look like? And I really do believe that when people incorporate more foods of their own lineage, that 
not only is it healing their own physical, mental, spiritual well-being, but in my belief system, we're also healing those ancestors by remembering their food ways because they had no choice but to change their food ways. And when you look back, what were the foods that had been given up that you have now incorporated into the way that you cook and teach and the workshops that you do? Right. Well, Because of where I live, I have a lot of cactus around. And that's something that here in the desert, like a lot of people just look at it as a cactus. You know, they don't really look at it as as food as I mean, just looking out my window now as I'm speaking to you, I mean, I have saguaro, I have choya, I have barrel cactus, I have pincushion cactus, all of these cacti fruit, and some of them can be eaten almost like a vegetable, such as the choya, um, whereas the saguaro, we use the fruit, you know, in different traditional beverages and jams and things like that. So for me, I really started with cactus. And then from there, I really went into every direction possible, roots, leaves, barks, (laughs) everything. Yeah, but cactus was my starting point because I do have a good memory of my grandmother. I believe she was pickling the prickly pear cactus pad, the nopales. And that was something that I really didn't grow up eating, but I do remember my grandmother eating it. And that's, you know, kind of what I'm saying is I, I feel like I'm remembering these foods and honoring them again by bringing them back onto my plate and back into my kitchen because many of us were taught that those were stigma foods in many ways, like that showed our indigeneity. And to be assimilated meant that we had to adopt this standard American diet, and that didn't include things like cactus fruit. And so it wasn't that we were forgetting our foods purposefully. It was like we were just trying to fit in. And these foods now are just so well known as being just absolutely nutrient dense. And I feel sad that generations have missed out on this. And so that's what is so important to me is bringing these foods back into the forefront. I mean, that makes me think of two things, right? Because the the diet, that assimilated diet was really, a, I don't want to say a deadly diet, but close to deadly diet. Well, it is a deadly diet because for many of us, our families were reliant and um, some still are on the commodity food program. And the commodity food boxes are still in practice. And to me, many of the foods in there are definitely not healthy foods at all. Right. I mean, they they really aren't. And then they contribute to obesity and malnutrition, which is just, it's enraging. And on the flip side, now there has been an adoption of looking at some of the indigenous foodways and they've become sort of cool and adopted by more Western thinkers. Like, what are your thoughts around that? When I started on this journey of remembering my own foods, what was troublesome to me was that a lot of the teachers that were teaching were actually not indigenous to the land itself. And it was very frustrating to me time and time again, you know, if I took a workshop or something like a plant walk or foraging, wildcrafting, they really would talk about the plants, like they were part of the environment, but they weren't one of our relatives, which is how I had learned. It was like we were in nature, but we were not part of nature. And then they would talk about the plants and their uses as if we still don't use them. And so that was really hard for me, being an indigenous person and taking a class from a white person And they were referring to the indigenous tribes that were using them as used them, E-D, used, as if they were no longer being used or if the people themselves were extinct. And so um, I went on this quest to find and only learn from indigenous people of the land. And it really... Oh, it was such a life-changing decision for me because I was able to start listening from somebody who also saw me 
and they were sharing the stories and they were sharing the history and the prayers and everything that came about with how I originally started when I was a young girl with my grandmother. And so that is where I I really um, strive now when I'm even teaching my own workshops is honoring where we're standing. I, I make people that take my workshops before they arrive, like they have to know where they're going, like what is the land that they're going to be foraging on. They have to bring an offering, you know, and I am very adamant about making people understand that they're on stolen land and that we need to honor the, the people that are still trying to thrive here and live here and cultivate their plants here. And so that is a major difference from my first experience of learning my own foods from this land. Can you tell me more about the making an offering as part of the workshops? Well, it's it's always different. Um, I teach people that I would describe as indigenous people. Um, we might do a song or a prayer. We might go off uh, to forage and, and just speak to the plant and thank the plant. Um, if it's a mixed group of people, then, you know, I usually just guide them through of what that means because oftentimes even seasoned foragers, they've never talked to a plant before and they think that's very funny. And, you know, but it's a matter of, you know, it, it's respect. It's having that mutual respect for the plant before you just go take. It can be something as simple as, the water that you brought to drink for your workshop that you just offer some to the base of the plant and just say thank you. And I know that you've just moved into a new house and you've picked a new piece of land that you're very excited about. Can you tell me about the the land that you're on right now? Yes, so I'm on Yavapai uh, lands. Um, I'm about an hour outside of Phoenix. It's very beautiful. You know, this land really did help raise me. I, I really want to make that clear this land where I am looks like where I grew up, just desert, tons of desert, raw desert, but I'm only a few minutes away from the river. And so when I go to the river, there's suddenly a, a different landscape, cottonwood trees and things like that. And so I'm very excited because, you know, I want to now learn all of those different plants that are growing along the river. I wanted the opportunity for my students when they come to learn foraging from me that we would have an abundance of plants. And so where I am, there are more plants here than meets the eye. They're they're everywhere. (laughs) I've only been to the desert, I guess, twice. I was up in Joshua Tree and I remember walking on the land and thinking, "I, I don't see anything. And then your eyes adjust and then it's like... There's so many things, you know, but it just takes like being sort of peaceful and centered and then appreciating that it's not all beige. It's not sand. It's like 10,000 textures and iterations. And then once you see it, really going to the desert changed the way that I see the world because I realized how I'd gotten very attuned to like brightness and contrast and a certain set of shapes. And it was amazing to have a completely different experience where you actually need to sort of be quiet for a minute and be more observant. Thank you for sharing that because it reminds me of how many people have come to learn from me. And they grew up, let's say, in the Phoenix area. And Phoenix is a city that is like the people itself, there's so many transplants. And so we have all sorts of plants there that are not native to the area, such as palm trees and eucalyptus and olive trees and things like that, that when they get out into the raw desert, it does take a little bit of adjustment to recognize what is out there and what does our real native landscape look like. And what I always love sharing with people is here in the Sonoran Desert, we have over 300 medicinal and edible plants. We actually have one of the most edible and medicinal landscapes in the world. But when you look at the desert, it doesn't seem that way. So many people don't see all of the things that I see. And when you have the opportunity to actually be with the plants and harvest different foods, like you you cannot even believe that maybe that plant was in your yard for 
the last 15 years and you never knew you could eat it. Exactly. I mean, it, it reminds me of the distinction, like, why is it that a certain type of pine tree is a Christmas tree and then you have rosemary? You know, you have these things that are related, but one is for cooking and one is only ornamentation. We've limited ourselves in every way across every part of the animal kingdom. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what well, you were doing massage and the, how you came into your own as a curandera. As I understand it, it's a, a name that you had to earn through your work. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'll give you the short version. <laughs> When I was in my 20s, I was actually in college for art here in Glendale in Arizona. I was in my third year at ASU West. And my brother had passed away during this time. And one of the last things he had said to me was that he thought I should be a massage therapist because while he was in the hospital, I would comfort him by massaging his feet or massaging his legs, you know, anything to keep him comfortable. And so that always stuck with me. And after he passed away, I actually took a year off to grieve and he planted a seed. It basically is what happened. And I never went back to college. I enrolled in massage school. And when I was in massage school, that opened a new door for me also to different traditional, I would say complementary, you know, healing modalities. And it really gave me a literal space to, you know, see people, they would come to get a massage. And that was really where I started working with herbs, I would have different teas that I would prepare for people when they came to see me for their session. It gave them the opportunity to like sit and speak. And they would always ask me like, what did you make? You know, what is this tea? And so then I would start blending teas for them to buy and take home. I had read that you were making people the teas. And I'm I'm curious, like, what did you make the teas with? And what effect were you hoping the teas would have? And is it a practice that you've continued? Are you still blending teas? Yes, I still blend teas for all of my clients for certain sessions, but Mexican grandmothers, I would say especially, uh, love their teas, <laughs> all different types of infusions. And it's something that so many of us grew up with a healing grandmother or even your mother. Chamomile was used for any type of anxiety or uh, sleep, you know, or maybe we would have uh, hierbabuena, which is spearmint that we would all have outside our doors. It felt like so many of us grew up with that remedy for like upset stomachs and things like that. So it was very much an extension of my grandmother's to have this tea for when people came to see me. And so some of the teas would be with fresh herbs that I would just make in my office space. And then some of the teas were teas that I could buy in bulk. I was never making anything from a tea bag. Um, it was always from some type of blend I would make. And the purpose was, uh, frankly, to just honor the person for coming to see me and giving them a space to just kind of sit and talk for a moment, which is a big part actually in, in curanderismo, which is the traditional medicine uh, that I practice. It's, it's an opportunity for the person to sit and just speak from their heart and talk. And so the tea kind of holds space for them because you can't just drink quickly a cup of you know hot tea. And so it, it gives them that opportunity to, to slow down. So from there, the, the journey continued, right? If, if that was the beginning, can you tell us a little bit about the journey from there? Since I was very small, I've always been curious by flowers and aromatics. Anything that smelled good that was a plant, I was obsessed with it. And I would put plants like in little bottles when I was a little girl in water no one taught me this. I don't know where I learned this. And, you know, I'd almost make like a senti out of these things. And I was making like little herbal infusions, not knowing really what I was doing, but it carried into my adulthood. And I started wanting to know more about aromatherapy and aromatics. And so I started training and learning. And eventually I had moved to Seattle, Washington, and I started working at an aromatherapy store up there. And that's all I did was blend oils for my whole work day. 
And so by the time I moved back to the Phoenix area, like I was doing massage, I had really started my practice working with aromatics. And at that time, I had met my daughter's uh, father and we had started our business. And that's where I guess my love for herbal remedies and wanting to implement them in the kitchen, things started overlapping. And so that was a turning point for me because I had started gaining like herbal knowledge, um, taking workshops, things like that. And then when I got to have my kitchen, it was like, uh, I don't want to sound like I was a kitchen witch, but I started putting like different medicinal herbs and things that I felt were going to be so healing for people, let's say during cold season and things like that with nobody really knowing what I was doing because I didn't want to be labeled a witch, (laughs) but it was like my little secret way of kind of adding all of these fresh herbs into all of the different dishes. And at the actual restaurant, we were growing herbs, we were growing things, and I loved using all of those things in my dishes. And so that kind of continues on to, after I closed the restaurant, everything just kind of came full circle I guess part of my learning, I recognized that, yes, I do love working with people, with energy and with massage and with aromatics, but I saw that my true gift was in feeding people. And so through my training and becoming a curandera, which took over 23 years, it was one of my teachers, Patricia, she I think saw that gift in me. She called it culinary medicine. So when I earned my title, uh, she held ceremony for me with other elders in our community. And they gave me the title of curandera specializing in culinary medicine. And as I understand it, that is an addition, like it would be a sixth branch because there's actually five other branches. And so adding culinary was a special honor. It was extremely special. um, And she had to consult some of the other elders that are curanderas in the Southwest to ask for permission to give me this title, because this is a very old tradition um, with five branches, one being midwifery, you know, one being a bone setter. And to say now we're adding a sixth branch, she didn't want to be disrespectful. And so my maestra, Patricia, she had to consult. And your sister, I believe, is a, a midwife. Is that right? Yeah, so she is a traditional midwife in Oakland. And even though we're apart from one another, we work together quite frequently. And we had a project we put together a couple of years ago because she was trying to put together a list for her clients who were wanting to have just a better grasp on postpartum foods. And so I put this beautiful piece of work together after just so much research and my own work and also my own being a mother and um, just a list of postpartum foods. And so we still talk often about different foods that might be beneficial for someone and of all lineages, but both of us primarily work with helping our own community re-indigenize their diet, and which also includes postpartum foods. It's such an important piece of work to, is the word you use, re-indigenize the diet? Is there a process for you to teach that to others in addition to the workshops, which obviously that affects a, a smaller number of people, but through maybe the organizations that you're a part of and you do a lot of speaking? Yes, I do. One of the reasons why I believe I've been successful in my speaking to the indigenous communities about re-indigenizing their diets is because I'm coming from a place of understanding. And one of the biggest things that I share with them is to release any shame that they may be feeling of where they are in their health at that moment. We have been marginalized in so many ways with our food and just the health disparities that have uh, arise from all of these different food changes. Many of us feel like it's our fault And when a lot of the nutritionists or other speakers and people who I'm sure their intentions are good are trying to help people get back and 
you know, a lifestyle of better food ways and things like that, they aren't coming from a personal perspective. And that alone is can feel very shameful because it's it's different. And so when I am teaching and, and I work with this, even with my sister and her clients is if you can't afford some of these foods that would be labeled, let's say white privileged foods, that's okay. Like go look in your backyard. It's okay if it's not quote organic. You know, I teach people how to wash the foods as best as they can if they're not organic foods. Like this is a real issue that I see when I'm teaching on the tribal nations, just having access to water is is very difficult for many. Even water that's coming out of the faucet is tainted with uranium. So it doesn't matter if I'm bringing organic vegetables for a workshop and we're rinsing them off with uranium water. So it's like the problems are real and I never want them to feel embarrassed or shamed about that. I want them to be empowered. And that's where that kitchen healer approach comes full circle for me. You had said at some point that, you know, you want to be a good ancestor and you want to help heal some of the ancestral wounds, which I found very moving. Yes, that is very important to me because I feel like we're in a space right now of, you know, 2021 that we can make choices where before many of my ancestors didn't have that privilege. And so I really do want to be the best ancestor possible for my own daughter and my, my nieces and nephews, I consider myself a generational pattern shifter. And that's something that I try to teach when I'm going to the different tribal nations or even here in, with my own indigenous community here in, in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm really excited to hear more about your visit to the different tribal nations. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Alicia's journey through the Southwest. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School. Coming up March 13th through 21st, 2021 is their 28th annual spring conference. Organic Grower School Spring Conference is a -a one-of-a-kind event that offers workshops on organic growing and sustainable living. Its mission is to provide down-to-earth practical advice while remaining affordable and accessible. This year, the conference is going virtual and will be accessible to more people than ever before. Attendees will learn how to farm, garden, and live organically through 12 tracks and more than 30 workshops. It will feature three keynote talks, Q&As, and lunchtime entertainment. Tracks include cooking, gardening, herbs, mushrooms, permaculture, sustainable living, and more. Plus, it's affordable, starting at just $20. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan with Felicia Ruiz, and we're talking right now about an extraordinary trip that she took in the Southwest. Yes, so that was one of the best experiences of my life. It was a grant, I believe, through the Paul Newman Foundation. And that grant, in conjunction with the nonprofit, had acquired a food truck, a rather large food truck. It wasn't a small food truck. I just want to put this out there. So um, what the nonprofit was recognizing was that there were so many communities all over the Southwest who didn't have the funds to travel to Phoenix, you know, and stay in a hotel and all of these things just so that they could take a workshop or two. So they had this food truck outfitted into a commercial teaching kitchen. And so when they approached me, I thought, well, great. I would love to do this. Like, sign me up, you know. I think at that time I was 45. And so I had to learn how to drive the truck with like a commercial truck driver. And, you know, there's no radio, no anything in there. It's just you and this seat and there's like a little jumper seat. So I always had my assistant with me, but I took that truck all the way into Utah, down to the absolute border of Mexico in Arizona. And they, the nonprofit would organize the workshops for me. And depending where we were, 
you know, we brought everything, and I mean everything, everything from ingredients to cooking, baskets, so I could take people foraging. And what happened for me, again, it was like, I believe this has been my entire life, but I am blessed in that I, I keep meeting people that one, they keep me on my path, and two, my path continues to unfold with teachers. And that journey all around this the Southwest in this truck, I can't tell you how many elders I met, some of them needing translators from someone in their tribe that took me out and taught me about their plant ways because Southern Utah is very different than Southern Arizona. And the plants were so different and just learning different ways to prepare the foods and learning about their own struggles that they were having with their plants and learning the names of the plants, even in their languages were so important to me. And that's something that I never could have experienced if that opportunity didn't come with me driving that truck. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking you've talked a lot about the grandmothers and then the elders and how old are they? I mean, I feel like we're at risk for losing, you know, these stories and these traditions. Yeah, a part of my heart is really hurting right now because our tribal nations are being hit so hard with COVID-19 and the grandmothers and it was mostly grandmothers. I had a couple of grandfathers that were on my journey in that truck. I would say the average person was about 75 years old. I did have a couple people that I met um, that were about 90 and they held so much wisdom and there was a couple of grandmothers when we were up in, I believe, Chaco Canyon that they wanted to adopt me. I wanted to just be with them because a couple of grandmothers had said that they were so happy to see, here I was around 45 at the time, seeing a young person interested in their ways. And I just thought that was so sweet. But it, it was a matter of, it's not that the own community members don't want to know about the food, but many people are um, moving to the larger cities and they're, they're just disconnected. I kind of feel like I have these grandparents all over the Southwest now. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the cooking that you do, because I think that some of the people who are listening listen because they love to learn about food and, and just... I love reading about the types of things that you're cooking at home. And I'm I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that with the Nepales or with the ingredients that are local, are you making that someone else might want to make? I think you're working on a cookbook. Is that is that right? Um, well, I ha it's actually a lifestyle book. They say when you write one book, then you already start thinking about your second book. So I think the, the second book, I think, will be a cookbook. Um, this one was an opportunity for me to express all of the different healing modalities that I use in my day-to-day, -day, which some are with our indigenous foods. So for an example with the nopales, if you know any of the listeners are not familiar, it's it's the prickly pear pad and it is so similar I think in texture to okra. We pickle them, we saute them, we stew them. Um, but one of the things that I do share in the book is making a medicine water and that is just simply, I think many people now are familiar with aguas frescas, which are just like those overly sweetened, like usually fruit or sometimes like cucumber or something like that, like waters found in a lot of the Mexican grocers and um, I kind of took it up a, a little bit, um, one more level. And so this water that I make, it's super refreshing and it's unexpectedly made with nopales. And this is not something that I, I invented or anything. I, I, it's something that is just that we drink and it's so good for you. And being, you know, that so many of us in our community are pre-diabetic or diabetic, it's so good for diabetes and it's it's really green and tart. It almost tastes like you have lemon in there, but you don't. 
you know, it's so full of antioxidants and chlorophyll. It's just such a wonderful food and um, many people don't think to drink it, but it's one of my favorite things to do actually is to drink it. Well, I'm really excited. So I think it was, is it November 2021? Yes, the book comes out November through Roost Books and I'm really excited about it because it has been almost two years of my life <laughs> putting together and I'm very fortunate that I have an incredible photographer named Nikki and we traveled all over the southwest capturing the different landscapes and she even got to meet some of the grandmothers that I have studied under including one of my own aunties who's Hopi Tewa she's writing my forward so it was an experience and I'm so excited to share it with everybody so yes November excellent and that's going to come sooner than we know it and um you we're on Padma Lakshmi's show, Taste the Nation. I'm curious, what was that experience like? That was really surreal. First of all, I want to just say that whole crew that I worked with was incredible. Padma had wanted to put together the show called Taste the Nation, and she felt that she also needed to honor the people that were originally here. Um, and, and because the show was based on mainly the different immigrant communities and how all of their food traditions have kind of helped, you know, shape what we would consider American cuisine. And so they came to my house and we prepared uh, a choya bud stew with some of the wild chilies that grow here. One of the only wild chilies that grow here in the desert and Oh, it just was, it was neat to share that way because I have always, you know, had the conversation in person with people or in print, but this was so different to see it unfold when the show was done. I loved it. You've been called the uh, the godmother of Decolonize Your Diet. And I just, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Yes. Yeah, so many years ago, I had the opportunity to meet two authors who wrote a cookbook called Decolonize Your Diet. And along with other indigenous people, like this movement was happening for people uh, to start decolonizing their diet and in start including more ancestral foods. And that really resonated with me. However, the more that I was teaching in my own practice and uh, in presenting and whatnot, um, I found that I was meeting many people who would consider themselves um, mixed in that maybe they had a European parent and an indigenous parent. And the word decolonized for them, they weren't sure how to feel about it. And so I started using uh, re-indigenize their diets, but I still use decolonize the diet also because I try to decolonize healing, decolonize everything. Um, it's a very strong and powerful word and I've just had to learn how to use it um, depending who I'm talking to. But I, I personally love re-indigenizing um, personally. I, I understand, and I think that has so much power, positive power, you know, as opposed to D, which is a negative. It's not taking something out. It's claiming something that is yours. Um, it's a s small semantic distinction, but I can see the distinction there nonetheless. Um, and at the end of each show, I ask my guests if there's a, a woman who they believe more people need to know about. And I, I wonder if there's someone you'd like to give a shout out broadly to. I would love to. Um, I would love to uplift and honor one of my teachers named Valerie Segrist. Uh, she is of the Muckleshoot tribe up in um, the North Pacific Northwest. And she was my first indigenous herbal teacher um, that I had the privilege to take a workshop with and she is very much involved in food sovereignty and just getting back to health with our ancestral foods and I just really think meeting her when I did was so pivotal because she like going back to the beginning of our conversation she was coming from a native perspective and and helped me understand I guess just about the plants so you know about what I talked about, not not talking about us as if we were extinct because she herself was alive and well and using the plants. <laughs> That's the great thing about this question. It, it leads me down rabbit holes to discover extraordinary humans. So thank you for that. And 
Um, the very last one, is there an ingredient that you think that people need to know more about? Something that people maybe should experiment with in their kitchen that they might not get? Um, so this might seem a little funny, but um, yes, uh, scraps. <laughs> so I say scraps because one of my favorite things to do in the kitchen is to save all of the different, you know, bottoms and tops of celery or carrots or any of the things I might be growing or foraging in my own yard. And I save them in my freezer until it's time to make a pot of broth, whether it's a bone broth or if it's just a vegetable broth. I could not do it if I didn't have scraps. So that's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's a no waste. It's a no waste solution. And it certainly honors the land, right? Every time I throw something out and I do, I'm sad to say New York City apartment, small freezer. Uh, it just like it pains me because the, the water it took to grow it, the, you know, the farmer, the transit, the just the earth. So scraps. I love it. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's one of it's um, considered one of our indigenous knowledge ways. And, you know, I just want to mention as we close, like people talk a lot about permaculture and things like that. But all of that is, is like a word that that is based on all of our indigenous wisdom. And so not wasting and honoring the water that it took to grow that plant and all of those things, that is part of the teaching. And so, yes, save your scraps. <laughs> save your scraps and, and, and have gratitude as well. Um, well, Felicia, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really, really enjoyed um, talking with you. And I can't wait for COVID to pass. And you're, are you having people sign up for workshops now? I'm, I'm ready to come. Um, we are going to be having responsible workshops in outdoor on um, the property where I am. Uh, our first one will be in spring to harvest uh, choya, choya buds. Um, which if you've never had them, they kind of taste like artichoke hearts. And so um, moving forward, I mean, everything's a little different, but I feel I feel comfortable working outside still. And they need to be honored still. They're, they're going to be there regardless if we're <laughs> inside the house or not. True enough. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me. All of you listening, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And cheers till we meet again. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.